Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. This podcast was produced as part of Aspen UK's partnership with the EU delegation to the UK. For more information about events co-hosted by the EU delegation and Aspen UK, please visit aspenuk.org forward slash EU delegation. Hello and welcome to this special and timely conversation. Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to shake the world. And while we watch the desperate scenes play out locally, we are continuing to watch Western countries united in their response. Today, we are so keen to hear from our panel of foreign policy experts debate the strengths and weaknesses of the West response to the war in Ukraine and analyze what lies ahead. Hello, I'm Penny Richards. I'm the head of the Aspen Institute in the UK. And I really am delighted to introduce this webinar co-planned and co-hosted jointly by the Aspen Institute in the UK and the EU delegation to the UK. Our two organizations work together to bring you discussions on some of the most important issues that affect both the UK and the European Union. We're lucky that we're able to invite some of the UK, the EU and the world's top experts to take part in these conversations and some of the world's top journalists to lead them. And today, as you can see, is clearly no exception. We're so delighted we have this extraordinary and august panel to join us. And we know that they're going to be very admirably led by Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne is Politico Europe Brussels playbook um, writer. She joined Politico Europe after more than four years as the Washington correspondent for the Irish Times. And before that was based in Brussels as the European correspondent for the Irish Times. So someone who has been watching intently from both sides of the Atlantic, what is playing out. Suzanne, thank you so much for leading this conversation and over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Penny. Uh, I'm delighted to be with you all for this very timely uh, conversation this afternoon. Um, first of all, before we get into the discussion proper, I'm going to turn over to Ambassador Valdema Meda from the uh, EU delegation in London, who's going to uh, give some opening remarks. Well, thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, Penny. Thank you, dear members of the panel, distinguished members of the panel, I should say. Thank you for accepting our invitation. This is another uh, another event co-organized with Aspen UK. We're so proud to, to be able to join efforts with you to bring to the attention of people and provide a platform for discussion of topical issues. I don't think there's a, anything more topical these days, unfortunately, than the invasion of Ukraine by the Russian regime and the suffering uh, of the Ukrainian people. Uh, as we concentrate, uh, all of us, on providing uh, support to Ukraine, humanitarian, political, military support to Ukraine, and condemning and isolating the, the, the Russian regime, I think we, we should also focus more and more on the consequences of, of the situation here. And certainly, we are certainly doing that in Europe these days, in the European Union. I'm observing from London, so... Uh, with my past experience in Brussels, but also in Washington and New York, uh, I, I am particularly interested and in my team and all of us here in London at the different dimensions of change. Uh, certainly in the, in the geostrategic uh, scenario, I think uh, no doubts about the, the implications of what's happening. Uh, in, in the European theater, inside the European Union, 
between the European Union and countries uh, around it. Uh, also, from my particular angle, uh, the relationship between the EU and the United Kingdom, uh, what is the impact of these events and, uh, uh, and what's going on in the future of this relationship, the transatlantic relations. And uh, last but not least, uh, uh, the global order. Uh, the multilateral rules-based system, the multilateral organization's role and capacity to deal with this uh, kind of situation. So I think, uh, I mean, you, you will have um, yeah, plenty on your plate. Uh, let me say uh, just a few words uh, from uh, our perspective here in London. Um, I think uh, I've been here for two years. I arrived the day after Brexit as the first EU ambassador uh, in this country after they left the European Union. And, and I've never seen uh, a degree, uh, such a degree of quality in our relationship as I've seen in the last few weeks, in the last month. Uh, we can say it's for the wrong reasons. Uh, and of course it is for the wrong reasons, but still uh, I, I'm happy to see that when things become difficult, uh, allies, neighbors, and friends sharing the same values and the same strategic interests get together, find solutions and uh, take common action. And I'm encouraged by what I've seen in the last few weeks in, the, uh, in terms of the quality of this cooperation to look forward uh, to what else we can do together with all our partners to address uh, all these issues. My second observation uh, talking to you know, the wide diplomatic community here in London is, is of course a very clear message. This is not a European problem only. This is not a European context only. This is a matter for the international community. And I would like to see some of the countries who are still hesitating about the real impact of this situation to come to terms with the reality. This has an impact around the globe. And no one is immune to the consequences of what happened in the last few weeks, what is still happening uh, today uh, around, uh, around Ukraine. And I think this is a very important message that we should also pass on. But first and foremost, I think, and my interest will be in listening to you, not the entirety of the panel, I'm afraid, but my colleagues will follow attentively to uh, look at how you see it from, from, from the UK, with Robert Brinkley from the United States, with Professor Nye, whom I salute uh, particularly, uh, from, uh, from uh, somewhere else in the world, but with a Ukrainian perspective, from Mrs. Yaresko. And for my good colleague and friend, uh, and I, I have a particular word of praise for, for Matt uh, Masikas for what he's doing uh, 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 in Ukraine and around Ukraine, about Ukraine. So, so much can, uh, can, can be said, and I'm sure I, I will learn a lot from all of you. So uh, let me finish here. I want to give you the full space and the, uh, enough time to uh, go deeper into all these issues. I thank you all for attending today. Uh, Suzanne, I uh, hand over to you and uh, I wish you a very fruitful debate. Thank you very much, Ambassador, for those words. Um, just to begin, I'd like to introduce our panel, most of whom will probably be known to you. Um, we're joined, uh, as the Ambassador mentioned, by uh, Mati Maskas, who is the EU Ambassador to Ukraine currently. Um, he began his career in the Estonian Civil Service and has held various positions within the Foreign Ministry in Estonia, including as Ambassador to Finland and Secretary General in Tallinn. He also worked here in, in Brussels in the cabinet of, of Olli Rehn and was the permanent representative, representative of Estonia 
Estonia to the EU here in Brussels. Uh, from the US, we're joined from, by uh, Professor Joseph Nye. He's a University Distinguished Service Professor at Harvard School of Government, the Kennedy School of Government. He formerly served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, Chair of the National Intelligence Council, and a Deputy Undersecretary of State. He has been the author of many books and is very well known to us all uh, in foreign policy circles. So thank you very much. And we're also joined from the UK uh, by Robert Brinkley. Uh, he is former UK ambassador to Ukraine, and he was a British diplomat for 34 years, um, including uh, serving time as High Commissioner to Pakistan, as well as, as being ambassador to Ukraine, as I said. He's currently uh, associated with Chatham uh, House uh, since leaving government service back in 2011. And finally, we have on the line uh, Natalie Jeresko, who's a former finance minister of Ukraine. She also spent decades in, in, in business, in the, in the private sector, in private equity. Uh, so we're very uh, interested and, and, and really delighted uh, to have her perspectives today. Um, I think I'm going to st start uh, this conversation with yourself, Ambassador um, Masticus. Uh, you're reading, first of all, I, I, am I right in saying you're in, you're in Poland at the moment? Um, maybe you could give us a sense of, of where you read the situation now with this war. A lot, we're hearing a lot even today about diplomatic talks going on in Turkey, about maybe Russia pulling back from Kiev. Um, maybe just your, your, your initial thoughts on where things stand. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I am based uh, temporarily in Rzeszow, uh, southeast Poland, as close to the Ukrainian border as possible. Uh, the situation, very briefly, uh, is Russia's initial military plan did not work out, uh, taking quickly over Kiev and taking down the government. Um, the plan B did not work out either. Uh, and and now and now the it's fair to say that the focus this week militarily is mainly on the east of Ukraine in the Donbas region and in and in in Mariupol where the human suffering is is unspeakable diplomatically speaking what we have been witnessing is uh, uh, the Russians have tuned down the initial rhetoric a bit but the substance of the Russian of the Russian demands is the same. For Ukraine, in one word, to change their foreign policy course, to change their orientation to the West, to the um, to the international organizations like uh, like NATO in the first place. I do not for one second believe these leaks about Russia being at ease now. Ukraine, Ukrainian movement towards the EU. It was the EU agreement uh, for which the trade war in 2013 and the war proper in 2014 was started. Uh, against, I mean, if one if one looks at those Russia's demands, one needs to bear in mind that Ukraine is a democracy, even or included uh, at wartime. Um, 
86% of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine will, will, will win that war. And that would uh, was decrease uh, any appetite for, for compromises or concessions, as it is seen from Ukraine. 79% of Ukrainians opposes giving up the Donbass, legal, legally speaking. Uh, 75% of Ukrainians um, oppose giving up Crimea. And 56% of Ukrainians uh, oppose giving up the NATO pursuit. So it is, it is, even if, and I don't think the real negotiations have started, but even if or when the real negotiations start, this is something that all parties must always bear in mind. And Ukraine's Western supporters and friends also need to bear in mind. Yeah, really interesting point, Ambassador. Um, Natalie, we, we move to you now on that point about the Ukrainian perspective, which I agree is kind of sometimes, you know, missed those figures you mentioned there, the support for, for you know, NATO, um, the support for, for not surrendering, um, you know, these kind of realities, as we're talking about a possible diplomatic solution, need, need to be kept in mind. Um, as former finance minister of your country, uh, Natalie Juresko, I mean, what's your view on, on what's happening now in Ukraine and where things may be going from here? Thank you very much. I have to say that I, I don't agree fully with the ambassador with all due respect that this is about a Russian goal to change the foreign policy orientation of Ukraine. At this point, most Ukrainians and I believe that this is about a genocide of Ukrainian people. At this point, I think there is a clear vision on the part of the Russians that the Ukrainian people will not change their foreign policy orientation, that they will not bow down at the altar of tyranny. And I think this for Ukrainians, more than NATO, more than Crimea, more than Donbass is existential. And Ukrainians with each day of destruction and death become more unified around prevailing in this war because it is a question of existence for Ukrainians. And so all of the discussion of neutrality, there is no one in the country who will trust a statement from Putin that the war is over. It's just, if you've heard what the Ukrainian delegation talks about in terms of security guarantees, you know, they're wide and broad and, and having unfortunately accepted security assurances that ended up being meaningless in the Budapest Memorandum in 1994. What Ukrainians would settle for as security guarantees is extraordinarily demanding of the world because they do not trust their neighbor. Their neighbor has committed you know, an extermination of entire cities, Chernihiv, Mariupol, Kharkiv. Um, war crimes continue uh, in other cities. And, you know, a, a recent map from the 29th at about 3 p.m. Kiev time had more than 80% of the country under air sirens. So please don't believe that the focus is Eastern Ukraine. They're continuing to take out strategic uh, oil and, and petrol reserves in all of the Western Ukrainian's uh, oblast regions. And this is continuing to be something that destroys the Ukrainian economy. It destroys the Ukrainian economy from two perspectives. One, the physical destruction, of course, that you're seeing. The uh, lack of access to ports. 
the lack of an ability to have an economy to pay taxes to finance this war. But um, from, the second, from the second perspective, this is a major demographic challenge. If, if, if we have over 4 million people who've already left the country with an additional 6 million internally displaced who are slowly but surely making their way towards the borders, if one of every two children in Ukraine has been displaced, what does that tell us about how we rebuild the country afterwards? So this is no longer, a, in my view, about foreign policy orientation. In my view, this is an existential threat for the existence of Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, very sobering words. And maybe I, I, your comments capture this, what's going to inevitably become a, a conf, uh, you know, a cleavage, which is the war is still happening in Ukraine. And yet the foreign, the, the international community is beginning to think about how this war ends and um, what kind of diplomatic channels. You know, even, even this week, I can feel it as a, as a journalist that, that that's where the focus is going. And, and maybe the people of Ukraine are you know, do, are not ready for that, that they're saying, well, actually, you know, the bottom line is, as you explained there, it's this extermination. So, so it's very, it's very interesting perspective. Robert, if you'd come in there, I mean, you know Ukraine very, very well. Um, where do you read things at the moment? Well, thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for inviting me to take part in this panel. I, I do share Natalie's view of the situation. Uh, this is not an academic exercise in considering foreign policy futures. This really is about the future existence of Ukraine and whether or not it's to be subjugated to Putin's Russia. Um, the war is very much still going on. And we should have learnt by now not to trust the words of the Russians. So when a Russian general or a deputy defence minister says they've moved on to concentrate on the east, and then uh, we can look at what's happening on the ground and find that, in fact, they're still attacking all around Ukraine. So we, we must judge the Russians by their deeds, not their words. Be, be very careful about that. And that certainly applies to the negotiations which are now underway. This morning were happening in, in Istanbul. Be very careful about the statements that are coming out from, from the Russian side. And I agree with you, Suzanne. I think the international media, uh, the international community to some extent is already showing signs of fatigue with this crisis. It's no longer occupying all the front pages in the way that it did a couple of weeks ago. And there's a wish to find a settlement, put an end to the suffering, move on. But as, as I read the situation, I don't think either uh, Russia or Ukraine uh, yet feel that they have lost this war and, and, and want to stop in a dis disadvantageous position. It looks to me very much like a, a stalemated position. Russia can't advance further in its, in its desire to, to conquer Ukraine, but Ukraine doesn't have the strength to throw the Russian forces out. So it's now going to be a, a grinding contest of attrition to see who can get the upper hand. But I don't think either is yet ready to conclude a peace agreement. 
Thank you for that. And just to say to our participants, um, you're very welcome to put questions in our Q&A channel. We, we'd really love to hear your thoughts, comments, and uh, particularly questions. Uh, Professor Joseph Nye, your view on, on where things stand here, you're the other side of the Atlantic, and uh, for most of us here on this call, uh, how do you read things? We're now well into the second month of this war. Well, first of all, I want to say how much I agree with Natalie Jovesco about the situation. But let me step back a bit and ask a different question. Uh, was February 24th a turning point in world history? Was how much has the post-Cold post War era or order been altered? And I think the answer to that has to come in three different parts. One is the invasion of Ukraine totally changed the agenda of world politics. Uh, you know, everybody has to think about this and it has to be a, a, a prime concern. Uh, in that sense, it's a little bit like 9-11 was. It, it's not that it changed the world balance of power, but it definitely changed the agenda. And the second way we think about it or should think about it is the balance of power. Um, has the underlying structure of power, which underlies world order, been changed by February 24th? And uh, I would argue not much, but if at all, it has weakened Russia and China. Uh, both of them have lost greatly in terms of soft power, the ability to attract rather than coerce and pay. Now you might say in the midst of the war, who cares about soft power, but in the long run, soft power does matter. Uh, as we saw on the end of the Cold War, it wasn't the Berlin Wall didn't come down under a barrage of artillery. It came down under hammers and bulldozers wielded by people whose minds had changed. And then the third aspect of uh, how we should think about the world order is the normative structure. What rules uh, are being damaged and will they be restored? And clearly Russia has grossly violated the rules of the UN Charter, uh, which have been otherwise violated in part since 1945, but have provided some degree of stability in world order. Um, they had already done this when they seized uh, Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Now they've uh, made it clear in an outrageous fashion by invading Ukraine uh, as they have. The interesting question here on the third question of whether uh, this is going to change world order is going to be how it turns out. If Putin wins, if he divides Ukraine, if he continues to occupy Ukraine, then a profoundly important principle of world order uh, which is you don't go to war with uh, other countries unless it's been uh, authorized by the UN under chapter seven of the UN Charter, that will have a huge hole going through it. If on the other hand, the Ukrainians with the rest of the world helps to make sure that Putin does not succeed in either replacing the Ukrainian government or seizing a large chunk of Ukrainian territory, then I think that norm can be restored. And people will say, yes, uh, the system held. 
So on the first two things, the agenda of world politics, huge change. On the underlying balance of power, slight change, but if anything in favor of the West. Uh, but on the third dimension, the normative order, which we've had since 1945, the issue is still in doubt or still an open question. And this is why it's all the more important that Ukraine win. Yeah, um, Professor, you, I mean, your comments there about how this plays out and, and then that th the implications for the international world order. I mean, one of the issues that you, you alluded to it there was that this wasn't entirely unexpected in the sense we were here in 2014. There, there are questions about the, the West's lack of response that time. Um, and, you know, this whole breakdown of trust, you know, with, how, how far are the West prepared to go to help Ukraine win this war? And that's been one of the dominant themes over the last month, that desperation from the Ukrainian side trying to get the US and NATO and Europe um, to intervene more. But they're, you know, they're, they're holding back to an extent. I mean, Ambassador, bring you back in on this. Um, the EU, if we look at it in a couple of ways, there's the the economic sanctions, which people like me, journalists in Brussels have been really following closely. Um, and this is where the EU has huge, huge clout uh, in terms of its economic, its powers and economic bloc. But then there's also big debates now about the European Union and defense uh, and, and whether this is a turning point in terms of its role as, as a defense union. Um, do you, how do you characterize the EU's response at the moment and should it do more? Uh, thank you. Uh, first, first a clarification. Uh, while agreeing fully with Natalie uh, Iarescu's um, assessment of the situation, uh, what I what I meant was that the minimum foreign policy demand is a change of foreign policy course of, of Ukraine. Um, and yes, uh, Russia has proven its ability to hit any spot of Ukraine albeit not that precisely, uh, but I maintain that in the coming days, the main battles will take place in the east of the, uh, of the country. The EU um, has been, um, it is a bit, uh, of course, against the background of, of, a, of a hor horrible war going on. It is, uh, it is a bit peculiar to speak of, of how much the partners have been able to do but, but Susanna, you, you're a, you're a Brussels-based journalist, so um, of course, yeah, you're right. The steps that the EU has been able to do um, in, in its response to this crisis have been, have been tremendous. Uh, the sanctioning of 877 individuals, um, allocating uh, 1 billion euro uh, for, for military assistance uh, to Ukraine um, and, and also now giving massive humanitarian support. These are the uh, and start of, uh, of handling of, the, of Ukraine's membership application in the EU. Uh, these, are, uh, these are tremendous steps. And I think uh, echoing what uh, Professor Nice said, it, it, it really was a watershed. It, it, uh, for the for the EU, in terms of choosing sides, in terms of making up the mind, and also in terms of 
in in terms of making making clear to ourselves um, who the enemy is, who the who the threat is, who is threatening our continent, and and by that doing now everything to to cut the ties uh, with this country, uh, including very importantly in reducing and ending. Uh, relying on the energy supplies. Uh, you, you have seen the EU has plans to reduce by 70% its, its energy inputs from Russia. Many would want it to uh, be quicker. And, and here international cooperation uh, comes into, into play as well. And, and it's no secret that should, should the next round of sanctions materialize, energy stands at the center of the discussion. Yeah, but and on that, Ambassador, and I accept that the, the level of sanctions adopted by the EU with the UK, with the US, have been unprecedented. Ultimately, there was a, a trio of summits here last week in Brussels. And ultimately, putting frankly, Germany won the day. It said it didn't want any more sanctions when it came to energy. And you had some countries in the East Poland mainly, but also Lithuania and others, you know, the Baltics saying that they wanted uh, to hit energy, even even oil or, or some kind of a, you know, incremental. And yet, you know, they, they haven't done that yet. So has the EU, you know, done enough? Ultimately, energy is, is what would hit Russia. It would, um, you know, billion, by some estimates, it's a billion a day, but billions per week. Is being paid to Russia for, for for energy into Europe. I mean, is that is that fair? Is is how how serious is the EU about taking sides in this if it's not prepared to countenance that? Not only the EU, but also individual EU countries, and yes, uh, uh, among them German, have made have made clear their plans to to get rid of the reliance on Russia's energy export. Um, these issues were discussed last week at, uh, at the EU leaders' level, and and as I said, uh, energy will will take a center stand when when the new round of sanctions will be discussed. Okay. I, 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 I I know I know very well. I acknowledge very well. For some, it's too. Uh, for some, it's yet too little. Yeah, but you, you do think that when we get the could be a new round of sanctions and then then we're looking at energy more. Yeah, um, just to kind of the similar themes happening, of course, in NATO. I mean, Robert, just to bring you in here on Britain's role in this, Britain, a member of the G7. It's the first big, well, not the first, but it's a big post-Brexit foreign policy challenge. Um, how do you, as a former ambassador to Ukraine, do you think the UK has gone far enough? Well, thank you. I think Putin seriously miscalculated both the level of resistance he would find from Ukraine, but also the level of determination and unity that he'd find in, in the Western community. And of course, it goes wider than the West. In the UN General Assembly, 141 member states voted to condemn the Russian invasion only five, including Russia and Belarus, were, were for it. And the, the EU and the UK and the US and Canada and Australia and Japan and others have already done a great deal, I think far more than Putin expected we would do, in terms of 
financial sanctions, cutting off the Russian central bank's access to half of its foreign reserves. Um, uh, some four or 500 international companies have withdrawn from Russia. Not all of them had to do so under sanctions, but there's been tremendous pressure from our public opinion. And, and that too has hit the Russian economy. And there's been a lot of action to help Ukraine on the ground with humanitarian help, but also with military help, with anti-tank and anti-air weapons. And that, that continues. Have we done enough? No, we haven't, because the war continues and there are not signs yet that Putin and the Russians are pulling back. So I think there is something of a race to maintain the support for Ukraine, maintain the pressure on Russia. And I'm not sure that we really have the luxury of waiting for the next round of sanctions before tightening the screw on dependence on energy supplies from Russia. And there's an element of St. Augustine at the moment about the European Union. Um, make me chaste, Lord, but not just yet. Uh, yes, good intentions, but I think action is needed more quickly. Interesting. And Professor Nye, just to bring you on, in on this from the US perspective, President Biden has been very forthright in A, saying he, he used the phrase World War III of, uh, that he does not want to put American troops on the ground in Ukraine. And yet he's called out President Putin very strongly over the weekend. But wh how do you, what are the implications for the transatlantic, you were talking about the world order, but the transatlantic relationship and NATO. Um, do you think that, that this is a kind of a watershed moment for NATO and, and how do you read uh, the US response so far? Well, I think, uh, let's start with domestic opinion. There's enormous sympathy for Ukraine. Uh, in my <clears throat> small town near uh, Boston, there are people who are putting up Ukrainian flags. There's a difference between that degree of support from the point of view of a political leader and the danger of World War III. The idea of direct nuclear conflict with Russia means that you're going to have strong support, but support for measures short of direct uh, uh, military contact with Russia. Uh, and that's the area that Biden has to, to work with. Um, and I think what we've seen based on that is a, a is quite remarkable degree of uh, bipartisan unity in a country which otherwise has been having political polarization uh, in support for Ukraine. But I don't think you'd have support uh, for something which put American troops on the ground or created a no-fly zone where American planes would combat uh, with, uh, with Russian planes. Uh, so I think that's the, the space we've seen. Within that, I'd say that um, uh, the, the degree of, of unity with NATO has been quite remarkable. Um, it, it, before this invasion, it's worth remembering that the, there were a number of people in the US Senate who were pressing on Germany to cancel North Stream 2. And that, of course, was resisted by the Germans. There'd also been this strong pressure for Germany to actually spend 2% of GDP on defense. And those were disputes within NATO. They vanished totally. Um, in that, that difference across the Atlantic, which became somewhat bitter at times, uh, was gone. And Putin canceled it. 
So in that sense, um, I think we've seen a, a quite remarkable degree of NATO unity, but we're still working within the parameters, I said, that nobody wants World War III and everybody wants Ukraine to win. Yes, and as you say there, you know, it, it, well, it is a balancing act for NATO because, you know, you've got individual members uh, who are sending, you know, defensive weaponry and, you know, supporting Ukraine to an extent, but not crossing that line literally and metaphorically. It, 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 it's a balancing act. Um, I'm just going to bring in, we've questions coming in here, so I'm going to kind of go to the questions as we continue talking. And Natalie, I'm going to bring you in on, on this one which has come in from Isabella. Um, President Zelensky said that any negotiated solution to end the war will have to be voted by Ukrainian citizens in a referendum. You know, is this a negotiating technique? How feasible is such a position? You know, first of all, considering, I'm quoting here, um, the, the practical difficulties of holding a referendum under in a country under attack. And, you know, the, the uncertainty around a peace agreement. So what do you think about this prospect? I don't think it's a negotiation technique. I think President Zelensky is to some extent hemmed in by the realities of a constitution that has accession to NATO as part of its uh, its objectives. And so for him to, to agree to anything that would involve neutrality, <clears throat> which is being discussed and or quote, giving up uh, the path, or the, 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 attempt to join NATO would indeed require a referendum to change the constitution. There's no question it will be complicated and difficult, but I think most importantly, what that is a signal of is that the president understands that he is responsible to his people and there must be no greater differentiation between the two systems that are right now at odds uh, than Putin as a tyrant who's not listening to his people and President Zelensky who clearly understands that he's not able in a democracy to do whatever he wants. He has to be, he is a servant of the people, to use a phrase that happens to be the title of his television show as well. Um, so I, I think it's it's not, an, I think it's a recognition of the limitations on his power in a democracy. Whether or not um, it's practically feasible or not is an excellent question. And I'm sure that you know, if there, there will be no agreement that doesn't involve a cessation of, 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 of violence. And so I'm, think, I, I'm guessing that what he's thinking is that with any cessation, he'll be able to organize um, a, a referendum. And on Zelensky, when we're on the topic, um, I mean, what's your view? He's someone who has just burst onto the scene. He's obviously been there for a while. He, he was known to an extent, but has become this symbol of resistance, symbol of leadership, symbol of the power of communication. Um, the, the antithesis to, to Putin, really, in some ways. Um, you know, maybe as a Ukrainian, how important is he as a figure? And, and, and how unified are the Ukrainians? When we're talking about how unified are the West, but how unified are, 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 is Ukraine as a country, as a political entity? Right now, it's amazingly unified, notwithstanding the fact that there are many political parties that are in disagreement with the president. But, but Ukrainians are very unified right now in identifying one aggressor and one enemy, and that enemy being uh, Russia, Russian soldiers and Putin. The, the president has been extraordinary in motivating people, in showing his every everyday man type of quality. Um, again, very much in direct contrast uh, to Putin who sits at the end of a very long table opposite his uh, leadership, his other leaders, while our president sits uh, 
with, with his people. Um, I think that his, his approach, his excellence in production, his excellence in communication comes from his background and the people around him who excel in communications and, 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 and production. Um, and I think it's been used to, to, to a very, very positive way to continuously, daily lift the spirits of Ukrainians, keep everyone together, um, but also on the outside, as everyone knows in his speeches to the Knesset, to the UK parliament, to the US Congress, he has delivered very meaningful messages, not that everyone will always agree with them all, but he has definitely struck the heart and the minds of everyone he's spoken to and caused everyone to think twice about whatever their position was with regard to this war in, in Ukraine. So I think he's done an extraordinary job uh, in rallying, unifying, uh, messaging, and exhibiting strength uh, of character, which again, he's got the benefit of us all watching the strength of character of all the other Ukrainians as well. He's certainly not alone in that strength of character, you know, between the Russian, excuse me, the Ukrainian armed forces, which are doing an extraordinary job, Ukrainian citizens who are in places like Kherson standing up physically to tanks uh, and, and pushing them down the street to farmers who are, you know, taking their tractors and pulling uh, tanks away. Every single person is in this together. If you, if you look at the number of people who've come back to Ukraine, we talk a lot about the refugees leaving, but you know, half a million people have come back to serve either uh, in the armed forces or in the humanitarian aspects of this war. I think that the Ukrainian people have just been extraordinary and he's, he's reflecting and he's building on that and he's, he's representing that. Thank you. I mean, I suppose one thing, as we said at the beginning, we're, we're maybe not, no one's at the point yet of thinking of, of a peace, but what, where the challenge will be will be the terms of any negotiated settlement that, you know, there's examples through history, my own country in Ireland, there was a fight for independence, but then the terms of those, that peace did not, everybody was not happy. And then there was a civil war. I mean, I'm not, but you know, it's going to get complicated when, when the conversations happen. I think um, many of us think that we have to prevail. I have to be perfectly frank with you. There's no compromise. That's, that's, the only yeah. end here is prevailing in this war. So no, uh, you know, keeping Donbass, Crimea. Or, or, yeah. No one is going to go backwards after this much death and destruction. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, thank you very much for that. Um, another question uh, for the ambassador, actually, is probably a good one here. Um, just bear with me. David Blackman um, makes the point that a Ukrainian commitment to neutrality would clearly exclude its membership of NATO. Would it affect the prospect of Ukrainian membership of the EU? That's a very good question, because this is one of the themes that's been uh, bandied about at the moment when we think about what kind of settlement could emerge. Um, would... Ukraine have to shelve its, its aspirations for membership of the EU? And, and how, do you, how do you read that, Ambassador? I, I think Natalia Resko made very clear the, uh, the, the framework, the political and, if you will, if you will uh, psychological framework that is there. So, so um, there is no point to speculate or foresee any giving up NATO uh, aspirations at, at this stage. Um, the EU membership application was uh, accepted by the, by the EU leaders and, and the European Commission was tasked, um, as is normal uh, in, this, in this situation, was tasked with, with um, preparing an, an opinion 
on the on the um, on the application, and then going back to the to the leaders. Uh, of course, Ukrainians are expecting this um, happening very soon. Um, there are things that cannot happen uh, very soon um, or at, at an accelerated pace as far as the EU membership is concerned. It is about applying, applying and implementing EU law. Otherwise, you cannot function on the single market. So all, all those issues will be dealt with. But the political signal of Ukraine belonging to the European family and the start of the very of the very process uh, of uh, of the membership application again something that five weeks ago was absolutely out of cards. It'll be interesting to see if more pressure comes on the EU in any kind of negotiated settlement or discussions to really commit to the, the membership. You know, will that become a focus uh, of this? Because obviously all countries have to agree and we know there are some countries that, that are resistant or are less keen than others on that. But yeah, it, it's going to recur as an issue. And um, Professor Nye, this is probably a question for you. We have a question coming in from Anthony Wills. Is there a, I mean, your, your views on this, is there a face-saving exit route for Putin, bearing in mind that he's militarily, he, he's perceived to be losing uh, the battle and also geopolit geopolitically, where does Russia now stand in the world order? Well, I think Russia has definitely lost. Uh, Putin uh, miscalculated on various scores. He used to have a reputation for having a great deal of military power. Or certainly he tried to build that up. Uh, the effectiveness of the Ukrainian resistance, I think, punctured that view of the, uh, the, the mighty Russian army. Um, in addition, he lost a good deal of soft power, the ability to get what you want through attraction. And so in that sense, I think, uh, and, and of course, third, you have the damage to the Russian economy with the collapse of the ruble and the closing of the stock market and so forth. So I think, I think this has been a net loss for Russian power of military, economic and soft power. So that was a, a big mistake for it. I think the, the question of uh, how he comes out of this, is there an off ramp? If he, if he stays there, tries to uh, capture Eastern Ukraine, some people talk about partition along the Dnieper River and reducing uh, Ukraine to a rump state uh, in the West or something like this. This I think would be a, a disaster um, for everybody for the reasons I said earlier about the international normative order, but I don't think it would last for it. I don't think he can, you know, it was one thing to conquer Chechnya with a million people, Ukraine with 40 million people, particularly with the resistance that they've shown, I don't think that would work for it. So I think this is, this is a huge mistake for, for Putin. And um, the, the best hope he has for an off-ramp, I would suspect might be if uh, uh, somebody succeeds in proposing a ceasefire um, and, uh, you know, an, an, an armistice and a withdrawal of Russian troops. And he tries to declare victory by saying Ukraine will be neutral and uh, uh, not join NATO. Uh, and we've agreed to disagree on 
um, Crimea and that uh, maybe on the Donbass that uh, uh, they'll be autonomous within Ukraine or something along these. This is the type of, um, of uh, uh, not a really permanent solution, but at least something to stop the slaughter of, of U Ukrainian civilians and allow Putin to get out of the, the mess that he's gotten himself into. I'd, I'd love to believe that's a high probability. Unfortunately, uh, those are my rosy scenarios. Um, so, but let's hope that someday the sun does shine. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Robert Brinkley, would you like to come in on that? Just your views on Russia's options here and its, its place in the world in a longer term perspective. Well, I entirely agree with what Professor Nye has just been saying about the, the loss to Russia's power and influence. I think it's already been clear over the last few years that the Russian economy was not an emerging economy, but a submerging economy. And what I mean by that is that Russia's share of world gross domestic product is actually been going down over the last few years, not going up. And this catastrophe which Putin has brought upon the world will only make that worse. I'd like just to comment on the fact that it is now Ukraine which is negotiating with Russia. Um, without France and Germany or anybody else involved in, in the negotiation, Turkey is hosting it, but the negotiations are between Russia and Ukraine. And that's very important because there's been a tendency in the last few years since 2014 for all sorts of other countries to come up with solutions about what would be best for Ukraine, rather than listening to what the Ukrainians themselves want. Now the Ukrainians are, are negotiating, and there's another danger for us to avoid. We shouldn't be more Ukrainian than the Ukrainians. I think th this is now for President Zelensky and his government to decide if necessary with a referendum of the people in their democracy, what they think is the best outcome. And I don't think it's for us as outsiders to dictate what the best outcome should be. Interesting point. Um, Natalie, I might just bring you in on this question. Someone has asked, um, okay, how much accurate information does the average Russian citizen have access to? And she's making the point that even in the UK, it's difficult to know what to believe. Um, Maybe just generally, what's your view, A, on that, the, the, you know, media access for Russia, but also what's your view of the Russian people, the ordinary Russian citizen, um, and how they are responding to this war? And if there are any room for any pressure to be put on Putin domestically? There's always room uh, that will require much deeper, much broader sanctions than what we've uh, put together to date. Uh, the Russian banking system is bouncing back, as an example, because we have not sanctioned most of the banks. Um, and we've definitely we've not applied full blocking sanctions to almost any. The um, Russian people right now have a very limited access to uh, information. And to the extent that with each day, uh, there's even less. So Novaya Gazeta just published its last, uh, its last uh, issuance uh, yesterday. Uh, in both the front page, the front cover was in Russian and in Ukrainian. Uh, it was a, it was an amazing cover, but things are being shut down entirely. Uh, social media is being shut down. Everything's being shut down. And so, to the extent that anyone voices an opinion that is in opposition or in different than Putin's, uh, they are immediately warned. They are immediately 
you know, shut down and or arrested on the street um, and or called uh, liberal uh, enemies of the state. Uh, he's named all the Russians who've left, uh, the middle-class Russians who have fled uh, enemies of Russia uh, for not sharing his, his uh, mythology. So I think uh, it is very hard for Russians. I, I think they've been fed a story for 20 years, his myth of uh, what Ukraine is and what it is not, uh, whether or not it exists, whether or not these people are real. And to a large extent, it fits uh, the larger, broader Russian empire myth uh, that has been in existence for several hundred years to which Russian people cling. Uh, rather than having you know, the option of developing their local communities, uh, which is something that Ukraine has spent a great deal of time on for the last uh, 10 years, develop decentralizing and building local communities, which is a very big part of the resilience that you're seeing right now. Local communities are, are very strong. Uh, instead in Russia, you know, you have local communities who are um, very, very impoverished. You know, the, the average, when you use averages for per capita income and things like that in Russia, it is very, very skewed because of Moscow and St. Petersburg, the wealth in, in two cities. I mean, you move, farther east, um, it's massive poverty and people cling to this mythology, I think to a large extent, historically, but also because there isn't much else to cling to. And so there's always a chance. Um, I've been through multiple revolutions and uprisings, even in Puerto Rico, they are very hard to predict uh, when, when will a people say enough. But what I can say is the West has not used the tools that we have at our advantage. We're waiting too long. And if we really want to end this, then we need to ramp up the sanctions, the trade bans, especially on oil and gas, um, but, but across the board much, much more rapidly. Okay, thanks for that. I'm just, we're, we're coming towards the end now, but I just have one question. Um, actually, I might just kind of reply to this myself. How is EU membership compatible with neutrality? Does Russia not believe in Article 47.2 of the European treaties, which is the mutual assistance clause? I mean, I suppose I'd say to that, I was just writing something neutrality. You've got countries like Ireland that are neutral, they're military neutral, that are part of the EU. Now, there is a debate about the whole definition of neutrality. The, the EU has got capabilities in defence, but even with the mutual assistance article, that allows you to maybe just do humanitarian rather than military help. So uh, I think, you know, it, it's, an, it's an interesting, I think it's also raised the point about what does neutrality mean, and, and, and it can mean very different things. How aligned are you militarily and otherwise? And um, just maybe the final word to you, Ambassador, you're just there closest to, to Ukraine. Um, you're in Poland. I mean, what, what, what's your sense of, 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 the, of the view from Poland now and how those countries on the front line are viewing this war? Indeed. Even with even more, with even more awe, and and but also and 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 sense of threat, but also with a sense of having been right uh, all along, uh, having having uh, alerted uh, the Western European uh, and sometimes transatlantic partners for decades of the threat from Russia. Um, Another, another element here in, in this response, uh, a positive one, is the enormous hospitality uh, that, uh, that all these kinds of, of course, being geographically frontline countries also to the refugee flows uh, have, have shown and, and are showing. 
May I do, uh, may I make uh, two quick points uh, um, to end with? Uh, uh, one to echo what Natalia Reska said. Um, it's very important to understand in this situation. Not only is Ukraine a democracy, but at the wartime, Ukrainian state functions, Ukrainian Ukrainian local municipalities function. And that has come as a surprise to some assistance organizations who are not used to this situation. Another, another issue, we have heard quite a lot about the insufficiency of the, of the sanctions and insufficiency of things we are doing on Russia. But, but I, did not hear, uh, the, I did not hear the notion we should be doing everything to help Ukraine to win that war to send more weapons. And yes, the Ukrainian NATO membership issue has completely be, uh, been absent in, uh, only in a reverse uh, order of, of what they cannot have. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Ambassador. Um, just to, to end the conversation. And before I, I turn back to Penny, just want to say thank you to, to everybody on the call, to our panelists for a fascinating discussion. And Penny, I'll hand it over back to you. Well, it's my great pleasure to thank all of you, Suzanne included. Um, I think I'm going to take so much from this, and I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to listen to, to, to you who have so much expertise and understanding of the situation, thank you. I think I'm going to hold on to the idea that Putin might be shown a helpful off-ramp and there are possible end options. And I'm also not going to forget Natalie's entreaty for more, for more action, for deeper sanctions, for more collaboration. Um, thank you. So much to learn from you all and so much more to understand than I did at the beginning. Uh, Robert Brinkley, Ambassador Matty Marsakis, Professor Joseph Nye and Natalie Yeresko, Thank you so much for joining us. And Suzanne, thank you for being an exemplary moderator. Thank you very much.